Today we conclude our series in the book of Romans, and our final scripture passage uh, that we're concluding with is in chapter 16, verses 21 through 27. Let me encourage you to turn there uh, in a Bible. If you don't have one with you, you can find it on page 951 of the Pew Bible that you can find right in front of you there, and I would encourage you to follow along. Let's read God's word together. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these concluding words of the Apostle Paul, who could not help but worship in light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Lord, stir our hearts this morning to worship. Enable us to give glory to you and you alone as we sit beneath this glorious gospel of God. We ask this in the name of our Savior. Amen. As Paul concludes his letter, not only does he desire to extend his love and greetings to the believers in Rome, as we saw last week, but that pastor's heart also wants them to know that they're not alone in the Christian journey. Here Paul sends greetings to Rome from his entourage there in Corinth, those that were helping him in the ministry there. And so he passes those greetings along. I will point out just two things in this first part of the passage that might give you some concern before we dive into the final doxology of the book. First, you'll see someone named Tertius who claims to be the writer of the letter. What was common practice for Paul to dictate his letters to a scribe who would actually do the physical writing. Some have said that Paul had poor eyesight and as a result needed others to write for him. And there are some passages that would support this, but we don't have any direct evidence uh, to that fact. In any case, it was his practice to have his letters transcribed by someone else. And I can just see Tertius finally wanting to get a word in edgewise by greeting the Roman church and putting his two cents in to Paul's letter. Secondly, you may notice that in most of your translations, there is no verse 24. You might have thought perhaps that was a misprint in uh, the type uh, as they were printing the translation. The oldest and most accurate manuscripts do not have the text that some of our earlier English translations, like the King James Version, do. And the verse is simply a repeated verse at the end of verse 20, where we read, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so nothing is actually missing 
in terms of content, and the latest and most accurate manuscripts do not have that repeat of that verse. So leaving that behind in terms of the greetings and now jumping into this final moment of worship for Paul, we see in the text that he utilizes a tested method of presenting a persuasive argument. If you've ever been in speech class, maybe in college, you'll remember these principles. He bookends the content of the letter with his overarching purpose in writing to the Romans. In chapter 1, he let them know at the outset where he was going and summarized his argument with much of the same language that we find here at the end in chapter 16. But the difference is a bit striking. In chapter 1, he takes 16 verses to methodically lay out his goals, whereas here at the end of the book, he only takes three verses to sum it all up. In addition, here at the end, he employs a poetic worship device to frame his thoughts He concludes with a doxology, literally translated, a speaking forth glory. And what a perfect device he chose for this occasion. For what better way to summarize this gospel of God that Paul now calls my gospel, but in worship. With an economy of words and precise thoughts, Paul gives us a beautiful expression that packs a punch in gospel terms. He begins his closing doxology with the reality that there is only one source of power as it pertains to the success of the gospel to penetrate the human heart. Only one who is able to strengthen the soul with the undergirding transformative power of his spirit. Human frailty, fallenness, and inability are traits that If you're fortunate enough, you'll understand them partially in your youth. And if you do, you'll find the school of life's suffering to be much more bearable. However, most of us have had to learn that the hard way, haven't we? That we're not invincible physically, spiritually, and emotionally as we once thought. There are no shortcuts in the classroom of perseverance, patience, and endurance. We have to learn the lesson that no matter how many self-help books we read, no matter how many motivational speaker podcasts we listen to, and no matter how much education we attain, this truth will remain. When you're at the end of yourself, you find there's only one source of strength and hope for God's people. The strength that you need for today, for tomorrow, and for the next day is found in God alone, through the power of the Holy Spirit alone, in the good news of Jesus Christ alone. Every other avenue, process, or journey will fail you, and the sooner you come to that conclusion, the sooner you will know peace in this life. Oh, what a blessed truth that we need not rely upon ourselves, that we need not pull ourselves up by our proverbial spiritual bootstraps, God is the one who is able, to him who is able. He is our source of strength. Praise the Lord for that. Paul then lists out four means by which the God who is able strengthens his people. Now to him that is able to strengthen you, first according to my gospel. 
First, we can find strength for today in the new covenant. In chapter 1, Paul calls it the gospel of God, as we have entitled our series. He also calls it the gospel of his son, or simply the gospel. But here at the end of the letter, he latches on to it as his most cherished possession, calling it my gospel. No doubt, as he has been writing, the Holy Spirit has moved in his heart with passion and power, reminding him of how deeply personal the good news is. Yes, this gospel was the Father's plan from eternity past, the Son's once-for-all work on earth, and the Spirit's continual work in the hearts of believers. But when God saves us, we lay a hold of this precious gift with permanence and assurance that it is now our gospel too. Jeremiah prophesied about this gospel, calling it a new covenant In Jeremiah chapter 31, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What beautiful words Jeremiah was able to foresee in the coming of the Messiah. This new covenant would be an internal reality for God's people. No longer would their faith just be about doing the right things externally. No, now God's spirit would be inside them and they would be righteous before God. And not only, and not simply because of the blood of lambs and goats, but because of the blood of God's own son, Jesus Christ, shed for his people. You know the words, they're familiar to us. We we quote them every time we sit at the table together. In Luke 22, when Jesus, on the night when he, he was betrayed, said to his disciples, when establishing the Lord's Supper, after they had eaten the bread, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. God's people find strength in the reality of the new covenant Through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, we can know God's words spoken through the prophet Jeremiah to be true. Listen to them again. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. What a glorious truth. Secondly, Paul says that we can find strength for today through the preaching of Jesus Christ. He expounds on this a bit in his letter to the Corinthian church. There we read, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul recognized that on the service, this art of preaching might seem like a pretty strange way to encourage God's people and proclaim the good news. And yet it is this means that God chooses to bring many to himself and to nourish his people. If you're not regularly sitting under the faithful preaching of Jesus Christ, then you will be spiritually malnourished. Isn't it interesting that Paul doesn't say the preaching of God's word, but he says the preaching of Jesus Christ. Preachers can be tempted to make the word of God fit their own agenda, and it might be a very noble agenda. We also might be tempted to preach according to popular societal trends, or even to preach on good works or moralism. But our primary duty is to find Jesus Christ and him crucified on every single page of this book, to preach him and him alone. There is an old gospel song entitled, I Love to Tell the Story. And the last stanza read like, reads like this, I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory I sing the new, new song, it will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. If you think the gospel message is a one-time event only for the unbeliever, then think again. The good news of Jesus Christ is what nourishes and strengthens the believer along this wearisome pilgrimage that we are on. A genuine Christian never tires of discovering Jesus Christ in yet another place in Scripture. Rather, nothing excites us more than that discovery. I really believe that one of the activities we will occupy ourselves with in eternity is telling each other our Jesus story. We all have one, if you know him. And it's the most precious story that you have. It's going to take us a while. There'll be a lot of people to get around to. But we've got forever. Whether when you reach the gates of heaven you have walked with him for 90 years or only a couple, it'll be the one thing about your life here on earth that you will want to tell everyone you meet there. For the lamb that was slain, the one who is the light of the eternal city, the singular object of all of our affections, the one who John says is the temple in that day, this one who is the lover of our souls, our heart's desire, and our bridegroom will occupy our every thought in that day. Will there really be anything else worth talking about than the glory of Christ and his cross when we're all together in heaven? I don't think so. And if you're not convinced of that, you may not fully understand the depth of your sin and the price that was paid for it. Think on the gospel, meditate on it, and pray on it. The more you do, the more of it you will want. You'll never tire of it. This is also a great means of evaluating a church. You know, should for some strange reason the Lord were ever to lead you away from this perfect place, what is the principal topic 
from the pulpit week after week? Does the preacher continually bring you back to Christ and him crucified, the gospel? Whether he's in Genesis, First Chronicles, the Psalms, Romans, James, Revelation, this is the singular message of the faithful preacher. For all of Scripture testifies in some way to this pivotal moment of the story of the ages, and we're to rehearse it in our minds and hearts over and over and over for all eternity. The third point is that we find strength for today by the word of God. In verse 25, we read some interesting words. According to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations. In a typical examination of Christianity among other world religions, let's say in a comparative uh, religions course in college, or if you're talking with co-workers and non-believers about the various religions. Typically, that discussion begins by placing all of the faiths on equal footing and discussing the beginnings of those religions historically, the founders, their teachings, their writings, principles and commands, and evaluating the good and the bad. But Christianity didn't have its beginnings in the story of Jesus being born. Its tenets weren't formulated in the writings of the Apostle Paul. This is a very important point as it pertains to the origin and foundation of our faith. It is not simply another religion, but rather the eternal truth of the universe. In his commentary on this book of Romans, Charles Hodge says, Paul speaks of the gospel as something which had been kept secret since the world began, hidden from eternity in the divine mind. It is not a system of human philosophy or the result of human investigation, but it is a revelation of the purpose of God. Paul often presents the idea that the plan of redemption was formed from eternity and is such that no eye could discover and no heart could conceive of. Christianity's origin was in the mind of God. It's not one human attempt at religion among many. It is the only path to God. It is the only plan, the only truth in the universe. And through the centuries leading up to the incarnation, part of God's redemptive plan were revealed little by little each subsequent prophet contributing another secret from the mind of God, giving enough information for the faithful to obey and believe, but still keeping a veil over the whole of the plan. Until that glorious day, when as John says in his gospel, the word of God that was in the beginning, the word from eternity past, the full plan of redemption put on a body. Lagos incarnate, the word becomes flesh. That mystery that was a secret in the mind of God was finally revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. All at once, the prophets had their fulfillment. The mystery was over. It all came together 
It was revealed. It all began to make sense. The living word unveiled himself as the subject of the written word. And as a result, this truth became the world's truth. It was no longer a truth held in secret by the Jews. Now it was a truth being made known to all the nations. Maybe you're wondering like me, why would God choose to reveal himself and his plan in this way? Why did he wait so long, so many thousands of years before sending the word to become flesh? Why would he keep his plan a secret for so long? I direct us back to Paul's previous doxology earlier in the book, at the end of chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I suppose if God allowed us a little glimpse of his mind, we would be overwhelmed by his glory and not be able to begin to understand what we were seeing. It would be too much for us. And it is not God's obligation or duty to explain himself to us. It is enough to know that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. So pause. Pause in wonder and amazement. Even as Paul did at the marvelous plan of redemption that God has enacted and bow in worship and gratitude that we are included in that plan. The revelation of the gospel to the nations is the apex of salvation history. The word made flesh. This leads perfectly into the next point. Fourthly, we see that we can find strength for today from God's eternal decrees Now unto him that is able to strengthen you, skipping down now to verse 26, according to the command of the eternal God. The seventh question in our shorter catechism, which we looked at earlier in our service, uh, some other questions, is what are the decrees of God? And here's how the answer reads. The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has ordained whatever comes to pass. So not only did God have a plan in his mind in eternity past, but that plan is unfolding exactly how he wills it to. And we are part of that plan. It is as though Paul is hearkening back to the teaching that he gave in chapter 8. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do I find strength in these glorious words? If God is for me, who can be against me? Oh, yes, I do. For our salvation is not dependent upon us securing our own way or holding on tight for dear life until the end. No, Jesus Christ has secured the way for us and he is holding us fast with a tenacious, eternal grip that can never let go. For God has commanded it to be so from eternity past and we are secure in him from before the foundation of the world. Now that's good news. And the beauty of these graces that we've just been reading is that they give us the strength for today is that they are part of God's plan to bring about the obedience of faith in our hearts. Look to the text again and let's review from verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, and according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. What a beautiful and concise encapsulation of the gospel. These things that Paul has listed out that he is worshiping God in response to have as their end to bring about the obedience of faith. Remember that only a few verses earlier, Paul had commended the Roman church for its obedience. What is obedience of faith anyway? Well, certainly, first and foremost, it's exercising faith in the finished work of Christ for our salvation. And secondly, it would be following Christ in faithful obedience to his word that he has given us. Paul, uh, Bob beautifully laid out our confession of faith this morning in his opening comments for much of what we have talked about already this morning are what our standards call, as he mentioned, the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Catechisms, means of grace. And we asked some of the questions about these means of grace in our worship earlier. What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption. Look at that answer again. The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption are his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. You want a church growth program, there it is. Not a lot of bells and whistles and excitement there, though, is there? Depending on your church background, this language might be new to you. It was for me when I came into the Presbyterian Church about 15 years ago. In fact, it sounded a bit sketchy to me at first, honestly. What do you mean, 
means of grace. That sounds like you're talking about work salvation to me. Not at all. Far from it. St. Andrews, along with other churches in our denomination and of our persuasion, Presbyterian and other covenantal Reformed folks, often refer to themselves as ordinary means of grace churches. In referring to ourselves this way, we are saying that the primary things that we as a local church are to be about are the ordinary means of grace that Christ has given his church. These means that we are referring to are our practices, which when practiced by faith are the very means that God uses to bring about salvation in his children's lives and to transfer to us the benefits of being his children. It doesn't mean that this is all we do, but it is the main thing that we are about, and it is what God has given us for our good and for his glory. And we confessed earlier what those means are. The word, both the reading, but did you notice in the subsequent questions, primarily the preaching of the word, the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and prayer, corporate and private. Interestingly enough, it seems that it is precisely some of these things that Paul is concerned with here as he wraps up his letter to the Romans. These are the things that inspire him to worship God, and they are what he says God will use to strengthen the church and bring about the obedience of faith in its members. St. Andrews, if we want to grow numerically as a result of seeing folks come to faith, genuine faith in Christ, and if we want to grow spiritually as individuals and as a church, if we want our children to follow after our faith in obedience and to endure to the end with the strength of the Lord, then these are the means of grace we must keep before us. We must keep the main things the main things. This is why church attendance is so important for the believer. We should be running here every week to worship as one who was starving and thirsty would run to a banquet table set before him. The one who has died for us, our Savior Jesus Christ, didn't die for us and then push us adrift saying, good luck, I'll be back to get you in 50 years or so. No, he gave us and continues to give us all that we need to be strengthened personally and collectively on this journey that's the Christian life. Are you weary? Do you find yourself tired of the struggles of life? Are you suffering with depression? Do you struggle with sin in your life? Are you just overwhelmed? Then be sure that you are faithfully coming to worship every Lord's day. Isn't it interesting that most often in those times in our lives, we stay away? Satan convinces us not to go. We're not good enough. It's those times that we need to be here. We need to be strengthened. We need to be encouraged. Come to give honor and pray to the one who has saved you. Come feed upon his word as it is faithfully preached. And be at the family table every time we sit down for that holy meal together. Don't neglect it. Christ is our host. 
Make sure that you're improving upon your own baptism when we gather around a newly baptized child or member of our covenant community. Show up at other times of corporate prayer and Bible study to feed upon Christ and his word. Make sure you're delving into the word and praying in the privacy of your own prayer closet. Don't neglect that. If we're not laying hold of the means of grace he has given us for our strengthening and obedience of faith, then I think we shouldn't expect to know his strength and faith. Finally, Paul gives hope to the church by pointing them in worship to the one who has both provided for and revealed this good news. The doxology began, now to him. And finally, as Paul is so often done with these long run-on sentences, finally we get to the end and we see the subject of that opening pronoun. Now to him, the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Our hope for tomorrow doesn't rest in Paul's wisdom or the church's wisdom. Our hope rests in the wisdom of God. The wisdom is so far above any other understanding that Paul says, the only wise God, as if to say there is only one who is truly wise in the universe. And it's the one whose gospel we hold on to. Take hope in that, believer. Our hope is also found in the glory of God. God is jealous of his own glory and everything he has created, both in our fallenness and in our redemption. We are bringing glory to the one true God, just as we are and will continue to do forever. And God's people can find hope in the eternality of God. This gospel isn't some temporal experiment that's going to run its course someday and be done. God is eternal. He's drawing an eternal bride together to be with his son for all eternity. And finally, I need you to take your pencils or pens and add a letter D to your outlines. For the final and greatest hope that can be found for the believer is in the Son of God. Could this glorious exposition of the gospel end on any other note than that of Jesus Christ? For it's all about him. Every week in our worship, just before we take the offering, we sing a doxology. A short, speaking forth glory to our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why do we place our weekly doxology at that point in the service? I know most of you thought it was to get the choir out, didn't you? (laughs) It's there in the service because by then we have in our worship reminded ourselves of who God is, who we are, and our desperate need of him. We have told ourselves the old story again. And so we pause for a moment, even as Paul has in the book of Romans, at the end of that glorious gospel, to worship the triune God, to give thanks to the one who has given us so much, and then to respond to him by dedicating our lives in offering, afresh for his glory, 
by offering up ourselves as living sacrifices. In my opinion, this should be one of the pinnacles of our worship service. We should raise the roof with these familiar short songs of praise and doxology as we join in with the Christians who have for thousands of years paused in reflection of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ to simply worship the one who has saved them. Our God is a faithful God. He has brought about a plan of redemption that could only have been fashioned in his eternal mind. It is too glorious for us, too marvelous for us, and yet we are right smack in the middle of it all. We were the ones in distress, rescued by our hero, only to live for eternity with him happily ever after. Whatever we face in the days ahead, God has given us strength through the new covenant, through the preaching of Jesus Christ by his word, all established in his eternal decrees, and we can rest in his wisdom, his glory, his eternal nature, and finally and ultimately in his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. O oh, faithful God, you the one who has secured our way of redemption, our way to heaven, our eternal life, accept our feeble efforts at worship. But Lord, do stir our hearts to that end. Help us to be so overwhelmed every time we're confronted with this good news to pause and to worship the triune God. Help us to respond in such a way that the world looks upon this glorious gospel with awe and wonder and can't but help be attracted to the good news of Jesus Christ. Now use us any way that you will, for all we have is Christ. Amen.